Welcome to another Trench Chat, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Roger Stewart, who works as a battlefield guide in Flanders, and he is the author of two superb books on the Great War, one about the German cemetery at Langemark, and a new one uh, that's just come out, Reclaiming the Salience, Resurrecting the Great War Battlegrounds of Flanders Fields, published just recently by Helion. So welcome to the podcast, Roger. Hi, Paul. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me on, on such a podcast with such a great reputation. So thank you very much. Thank you. So, I mean, you work as a battlefield guide in Flanders. How's your journey brought you there? Oh, it's, it's quite a long story, really. Um, originally, my wife and my wife is from this area. Um, so we, we moved to the area all around about 2010. And we opened a bed and breakfast in, in Ypres. Um, and then I've always had a passion for the First World War, going right back to when I was about 10 years old. And I can trace that right back as well. Um, I don't know if you remember, Paul, but growing up, I mean, I'm, I'm 55. So growing up in the UK in the 1970s, all the kids' comics were kind of World War II based stuff, you know, like Warlord and, and whatever. But there was one in particular called Battle Action. And it brought out a comic strip called Charlie's War. And it was for the for me for, for the first time I'd heard anything about the First World War, and the artwork in effect was very graphic in terms of you know the mud and the horror of the trenches and the rats, um, and everything else. So that really got me hooked on the First World War from an early age. Um, then I read All Quiet on the Western Front at quite an early age as well, and from then on, really had been it's been kind of a passion for me throughout the rest of my life, and it was fate really. I suppose I met my wife; she was from this area. Um, we opened a B&B, um, which we sold in, in 2015 because my wife has offered a job back in design, which is her, her real passion. But by then, I'd started to offer tours, A, from the B&B and working for different companies in town. Um, but now I work purely for myself. I run my own battlefield tour company. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, I, it's interesting you mentioned Charlie's War. It had a massive influence on me. You know, I'm the yep. same generation as you. And that kind of comic strip that really brought those stories of the First World War alive, a hugely kind of influential thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm busy collecting them again now because they've released them all in hardback form. Um, so I'm trying to get copies. I think there's about 10 volumes. So um, I haven't read any yet, reread any yet. Um, I'm not too sure if I want to, to be honest, because, you know, growing older now, will that shatter my illusions of it? I don't know. Um, but well, at the time, great, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some of the reprints, and um, and I still have a few of my original copies of the of the comic actually, because there was two that I kept, <clears throat> which is the story when Charlie's pushing this lad down the Menin Road, um, and I think it ends with a shell burst, and the lad survives, and he's uh -huh. not sure whether Charlie survives, and he then comes back in the nineteen eighties on a battlefield tour, and that oh, yeah. um, that oh, yeah. that kind of part of it is is this veteran returning. Yeah. Visit the the uh, brooding soldier and the main square at Eep and the Menin Gate, and I when that came out, you know, I was I don't know, I was about sixteen, I think, mm -hmm. and I was still reading it, and um, and I photocopied and sent it to John Giles, who was the um, yeah, yeah. the founder of the Western Front Association, and he thought it was extraordinary that this was, you know, in his words, hopefully uh, breeding a new generation of of battlefield historians, and here we are. Yeah, but it's important, you know, because, you know, even today when you look at, you know, all the films which have been released recently, you know, 1917, All Quiet on the Western Front, I don't know, some of them aren't true to the, like, the existing book or whatever, but from my opinion, it doesn't matter, you know, if it gets one person involved or interested in the First World War, then, you know, he's done his job, 
Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff being released, you know, literature wise and film wise at the moment as well, which is fantastic. And, and your work as a guide, you know, traveling around the battlefields on a regular basis as you as you do, you'll have heard all kinds of stories, not all of them entirely accurate. Yeah. Which I guess is what kind of led you to write your book on Langemark. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as you say, you know, being a guide here and, and, and being lucky enough to live here as well, you know, we get a lot of clients from, you know, the local bed and breakfasts and whatever. And what you have to remember also here is the local population here, um, you know, have suffered in effect two German occupations you know, in certain areas of Belgium, World War One, and of course, all of Belgium in, in World War Two. Um, and so over the years, a lot of myths sprang up about Langemark Cemetery to the point where it kind of became pseudo fact. Um, the reason being is there was nothing really for anybody else to refer back to in terms of research. Um, and you can imagine writing about a German cemetery in Belgium in the 1950s and 60s probably wasn't the most fashionable thing to be doing. And of course, there's also, to be quite honest, you know, a, a motivation of people here in effect of, you know, a dislike of all things German, you know, particularly during that, that era. And that's kind of been handed down, you know, to some of the generations. So quite often on tours, you know, we we tell people, right, we know we're on our way to Langemark Cemetery now. And someone would say from the back of the minibus, oh, yeah, um, our bed and breakfast owner tells us this is where they're all buried standing up. You know, and of course, <laughs> of course they're not. Um, or another favourite was, which I told the German Wargrave Commission this one, and, and they were just open mouthed. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, myths is the crosses were all black, okay, because we told the Germans they had to have black crosses because it's the colour of evil, okay. Um, and I told the German Wargrave Commission this, and they were like, you can't be serious. They said, the only reason the crosses are black is because of the wood preservative we use, the creosote. Just changes the wood black. Simple as that. Um, so that was kind of the reasons why um, I wrote the book, really, because you could hear these stories become pseudo-facts. And sometimes you would hear teachers telling their groups this as well. And I'm not a rude person. I wouldn't go up to another guide and say, well, you know, that's incorrect. Um, so that's the reason I wanted to write the book, to, to do or produce a balanced history of a book without bias, telling the story of the cemetery from start to finish up to the modern day, do a guided tour of the cemetery as well, and then a third section at the back of the book, you know, dispelling some of these some of these myths. So, yeah, that's the main driver behind me writing the Langemark book. And it is an excellent book. I mean, I've recommended it on the podcast before, but um, it's not often you can say that a book comes along and genuinely tells new stories of the First World War, and uh, that, that one most certainly does, so it's all credit to you. Thank you. And do you know what's been, been nice for me as well? As a, an independent guide here, what's been really nice for me is for guys like yourselves, you know, well-established guides have come up to me in, in the cemetery or wherever they've come across me and have said, thank you for writing the book. It's changed how we guide in the cemetery. So for me, that gives me, a, you know, a, a great deal of pleasure, you know, to know that, you know, that has changed certain, you know, certain things and the way people do things. And, and not only have you done that with Langemark with your new book, which is looking at that really fascinating kind of post-war period, interwar mm -hmm. period between the end of the Great War and the beginning maybe of the next Great War. Yeah. Um, it's another absolutely fascinating, compelling book, Roger. Thank and, you. And uh, a, a kind of essential theme <clears throat> with, I guess, reclaiming the salient is the iron harvest, which we kind of think we all know. Mm -hmm. you, 
bringing a lot more kind of information to that, really. Yeah, um, for me, also, I mean, again, this kind of stems back to my, you know, to my daily tour business. The, the two subjects which seem to grab people's attention the most is the, the iron harvest and, of course, body recoveries here, you know, during the present day as well. Um, and living here as well. I always remember when I first moved here, you, you're fascinated by the stuff. You know, there's, the, there's artillery shells and hand grenades and stuff laying by the sides of the roads outside the entrances to farmers, you know, um, courtyards or whatever, you know, and you, and you spend all your time pulling over and, and taking photographs. And you kind of have to take a step backwards and remember what they're manufactured for. You know, they're manufactured to kill people. You know, these things are over 100 years old now. Um, very unstable in a lot of cases, which means, you know, as you'll see in the book, there's been lots of accidents here over the years, including fatalities, some of it accidental, some of it caused by, you know, people are basically doing things with these shells, which they shouldn't really be doing, tampering with the shells. Um, but the real thing is, you know, the Dovo, who are the Belgian bomb disposal units, they still recover here every single year on average, around about 250 tonnes a year of unexploded ordnance from the First World War. Um, and the shocking thing with that is that is not decreasing as the years go by. If anything, it increases. Um, so the Dovo kind of, I think I mentioned in the book, I think there's around about 10 million, they estimate about 10 million shells left to be recovered, which means they'll be finding shells long after we're all dead and gone, quite frankly. Yeah, the statistics are absolutely staggering when you kind of look at it, you know, and you describe it in your book. And, and it's, what's interesting as well is that kind of post-war period, it seems that, you know, rather than just blow everything up, they buried a hell of a lot of stuff. Yeah, very much so, yeah. And you've also got during that period as well, during the German retreat in 1918, they're burying caches of arms, booby-trapping caches of arms as well. So it's not all about sometimes, you know, individual shells that farmers dig up. Sometimes they'll find caches of shells. I think they did in, was it 2018, around, about Pas around the Passchendaele area. You know, they found well over 200 shells there. Um, and unusually for the Dovo and for the Belgians, they actually shut the area off. I mean, you as a guide yourself, Paul, will know they normally just left by the side of the road and eventually they'll be picked up. But this was such a serious find that, you know, they shut the whole area off. Um, a high proportion of those, of course, were mustard gas shells as well, which is still viable today. So if you're ever touring the area and you see a, an artillery shell by the side of the road with a horrible black oily liquid bubbling out of the case, um, leave it well alone. <laughs> Start running. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you talk about how kind of tourists are very relaxed about this, you know, that people have kind of touristy photos taken yeah. um, around with them kind of standing by shelves or even sitting on shelves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, funnily enough, when um, I also remember when, when myself and my, and my wife ran the bed and breakfast, I remember it vividly. We went into a guy's room and he was staying with his son. And we went into his room to clean his room and he'd been out for the day and they'd gone out again. And sitting on the mantelpiece or on the windowsill, sorry, of his room was an 18-inch shell. And this massive artillery shell he'd found, picked up, put it in the back of his car, took it into the bed and breakfast and was going to try and get it across the channel. Unbelievable. So we explained to him, like, uh, this is very dangerous. You can't be doing this. And eventually we got the bomb disposal out to, to come and take it. Um, but there's a complete lack of how can I put this, not respect is so much, but education, I suppose. I, I, it's probably because, you know, back in back at home in the UK, anything like that would be roped off for miles. But here you see it by the sides of the road, so I presume people just think it's safe. Um, but, of course, it's anything but that. 
And, and it's a curiosity that goes back to those kind of early days. You, you mentioned an incident in the book with a Wargraves gardener who takes a lady out onto the battlefields. Yeah, yeah. Will, Will, William Curtis. Yeah. Um, that was an interesting one, actually, because we, we, I came across his, his name in the Flanders Fields names list, which lists people who had been you know, killed by, by the Iron Harvest since the end of the First World War. Um, and we look, I looked through the, the Wargraves Commission's um, records and could find kind of no record of him. So I thought the easiest way to, to, to try and track this guy down is to look, into, look in Ypres Cemetery, where the Wargraves Commission graves are. But he was down on the records as William Cuatis. Um, so by doing some research, we actually got his name um, re-registered on the system, if you will, you know, correctly. But yeah, his story was basically, he was, I think he was in a cemetery. Um, it looks like he was with another lady who was probably a tourist in the area because she was booked into lodgings in, in Ypres at the time. Whether she was showing him something or he picked up a grenade or a shell or whatever to show her, but it basically went off, killed him um, and, and injured the lady in question as well. So, um, yeah, Wargraves Commission gardeners, are, you know, have quite a dangerous job sometimes as well. I remember a guy telling me once, actually, over at um, Ypres Reservoir Cemetery, they found a hand grenade in the compost there because they were just digging the compost and that popped a Mills bomb, which is quite not unusual here. Yeah, I mean, many of the cemeteries are literally on battlefields, aren't they? So Absolutely, yeah. Probably not surprising, yeah, not surprising yeah. at all. And that kind of legacy of munitions... You know, as you've said, it's something that carries on to this day. The work of Dovo, who are the Belgian unit that deals with this, is never ending. Yeah. And I have to give these guys 100% credit for, for the work they do. Um, first of all, from, a, from my point of view, in terms of contacting them, they were so open in terms of helping me with research. I had two days out with the Dovo as well. They invited me to their depot where they diffuse all the chemical weapons and went through all the procedures with that. And I also had a day out with the guys who drive around and collect the munitions. But I was driving at a kind of safe distance, you know, behind them, if you see what I mean. And it's incredible. They they basically go around in, in a, with a flatbed lorry with a sand pit in the back. Um, when they get to a site, they assess the shell to see whether they think it's high explosive or chemical and also to assess if there's any immediate danger. And then when they think it's reasonably safe, they will physically pick it up, put it into the sandpit in the back of the van um, until it's full, and then they'll take it back to the depot. Um, on arrival at the depot, there's a guy, would you believe, and this is the only bit which is a bit low-tech, and this is the job I would not want, and this is the guy who has a hammer, and he gently chips the, the mud and the rust off the shell to see what type of shell it is. Okay. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then what they do, they then x-ray it. So when, when they x-ray the shell, they can then tell easily if it's high explosives or if it contains chemical or a liquid or whatever, and then they dispose of it accordingly. Fascinating place, though. And is it right they have a kind of special device to dispose of the, the gas shells? Yeah, they've got, they've got two devices, actually, and it, it depends on the type of gas shell, but basically they're, they're massive self-contained containers. Um, and what they'll do, they'll superheat the shells which then um, makes the burster charge within the shell blow. It shatters the, the shell in effect, releases the gas, but the heat inside the chamber is so much or so great, it instantly destroys the gas. The air then goes through a filtration system. Um, and then, of course, it's when it's clean, when it's released, and then the rest of the shell then is disposed of. Um, so it's a completely safe procedure. You know, um, There have been accidents over the years, of course, not with that equipment, but when the equipment was a lot more basic than that. Um, but it's real state-of-the-art technology there. 
And I guess that's not a quick process to diffuse a gas shell like that. No, from start to finish, you know, it has to go through the process, of course, of being collected, then being identified. They can only dispose of X amount at any one time. And, of course, the, the amount they're um, collecting sometimes, you know, outruns, outruns the time they've got to diffuse it, if you see what I mean. They're collecting more than the time allows to diffuse. And particularly in the winter months as well, if they're high-explosive shells, because what we do with the high-explosive shells, um, they blow them up twice a day close to the forest where they are. So they dig these really deep pits, put a crate of high-explosive shells into the pit with an anti-tank mine on top, cover it over with earth, and then blow the things up. But they can only do it for so many months a year because in the winter months, the explosions make the ground unstable in the area and they can affect the, affect, sorry, the foundations of the local buildings. So there's so many months a year when they can't dispose of things as well. So it then starts to accrue at the depot. Um, and then, of course, they carry on back in the spring when they can. So just as they're getting that big pile of munitions down, it builds back up it again as soon again. as the farmers yeah. work, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's uh, it just seems to be a never-ending process. I mean, as a guide yourself, Paul, you'll know that you can you drive around the area. And if you stay on a particular route, you, you kind of get to know where the farmers, the local farmers leave their unexploded ordnance, where, where they find it. And there's a particular farm just past the brooding soldier, you know, where you turn left and where the, where the big greenhouses are there. There's a farm there on the left-hand side, and he always has stuff outside the front of his gate set. So you'll often drive past there. There'll be half a dozen shells there, but after a week, they'll, they'll be gone. The dobo would have collected them. A couple of days later, he's ploughed up more because you're very close, as you know, to the Passchendaele Ridge there. So it just keeps going and going and going, yeah. And there have been some crazy people who kind of collect this live stuff as well. Uh, yeah, what, yeah, it's, it's true. One of the one of the problems, and this is one of the the reasons why there's been fatalities here. I kind of alluded to it earlier. Is people kind of abuse these things. Um, there's a big market here for collectors for some of these shells. Um, for two things, first of all, if it's an unusually large shell, um, the collectors like to take these things away, diffuse them, and then sell them as empty shells to other collectors. But also the British cells in particular have got a brass fuse. And if you can get the fuse off and shine it up, it makes a nice paperweight and you'll see them, you know, in for sale in the shops in town and, and whatever. But the problem, of course, is after over 100 years in the ground, the fuses don't unscrew anymore. You know, they're kind of rusted on. So you'll read stories here of collectors have been killed in the past by hitting fuses with hammers to try and re release them cutting them off with angle grinders, you know, sparks and explosives, trying to release these things. Um, so there are genuine accidents here, but a lot of the accidents here are caused by, you know, people just doing crazy things. And, and the problem is probably 99% of these things will never go off because they're faulty and they haven't gone off, you know, in the first place. But there's that small percentage which will, and you can never tell by looking at them. So eventually, you know, some people's luck runs out. Um, but an example of an accidental um, incident was, was uh, last year where a local, a Belgian farmer's wife picked up from a field what she thought was a potato and it turned out to be a Mills bomb. So the Mills bombs are British hand grenades. When they come out of the ground, they look like potatoes because they're covered in clay. Now, she picked this thing up. Luckily for her, it only partially detonated. So it damaged her hand. It peppered her face with shrapnel. I, I believe she must have been wearing glasses because her eyes were okay. Um, had that gone off properly, that you know, it would have killed her. Um, so she was quite lucky. 
I think that story even made the British press, I seem to remember. Uh, yeah, I think it probably did, yeah, yeah. Have you heard the story about the um, the Smith's Crisp Factory in Hong Kong a few years no. ago? No. Okay, there's a Smith's, there was a Smith's Crisp Factory in Hong Kong, and the same thing happened, actually. There was an explosion on the line. Um, it shut the line down. Luckily, it didn't injure anybody, but they traced the potatoes back to the Somme region in France. So amongst the potatoes was, was a hand grenade. Good grief, good mm -hmm. grief. So with the Dovo as well, I mean, these are kind of accidents with crazy people trying to defuse munitions and then things that go off on conveyor belts or whatever. But Dovo have suffered casualties as well, I believe. Yeah, the Dovo have over the years, you know, right from the start, of course. And the last major accident, you know, was, was in the 1980s. It's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a very, very dangerous job these guys do. And, and they're aware of the, of the risks and they try and minimise the risks as best they can. But there's always going to be that, that element of risk there as well, which they can't negate. So, unfortunately, from time to time, there are accidents. But, you know, luckily, there hasn't been a major one since, you know, since the 1980s. And it, with the, the kind of clearance of the battlefields after the war, obviously, the munitions and the material of war is kind of one level of it. But there was also the dead, the dead that, mm -hmm. you know, were everywhere in Flanders fields. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that's been... Probably out of the two subjects, that's been a, 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 the one which has kind of opened my eyes a lot to some of the facts which were going on here post-World you know, post War One. You know, I mentioned in the book, really, that you know, the British Army gave up looking for the dead and that there was a good 300,000 unrecovered bodies still on the Western Front. And there was discussions, you know, going on where they were worried about, you know, if, if the public finds out about this, there's going to be, you know, is there going to be problems at home um, in, with regards to PR and that kind of thing? Um, and this, I mentioned in the book as well, you know, when they, the British Army finally stops looking for the dead and kind of hands over part responsibility to the IWGC at the time, there were still bodies laying here above ground. You know, you have, you know, you have officers, you know, writing reports saying, oh, there's a body on the Langemark Road by a bunker here and, and basically given lists of where bodies were left. Um, so it's an interesting point um, in terms of that, because... I also make the point in the in the book as well, when you look at the clearance teams, the, the Labour Company teams who are clearing the dead, these guys were specialists. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd really, you know, created their own um, uh, set of rules and regulations on, on how to recover bodies and identify them and rebury them. And, of course, when these guys go, that element of, 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 of specialisation, if you will, had gone. Um, and so I make the point in the book, had they stayed on for another few years, how many extra soldiers' bodies would have been recovered and not only recovered, maybe successfully identified. But, you know, we'll never know. And the task of recovery was massive, wasn't it? Because there were, you know, we, we visit Flanders now and we still see cemeteries everywhere, but there were even more in 1918. Yeah. Uh, not, only, not only was it a massive task, it was a deeply unpleasant task as well. Um, as you can imagine. And also, as, as the time went on, you know, the, the, the army is, is demobilising as quickly as it can. So you've got this situation of, of less and less men in, involved in body recoveries. Um, so it becomes a, a more difficult task. But I can't imagine what that task must have been like for those guys in the early days. Because you have to remember, you know, a period in time, it's 1919, 1920, they're doing visual checks of the battlefield. They're looking for evidence of graves. I mean, some of it was quite obvious. You know, you might have an upturned rifle stuck in the ground, you know, with a helmet on, for example, or a shallow grave. But also they're looking for clues to where bodies were. For example, 
A shell hole, if the water had turned black, they know there's a body down there. Rat holes in the battlefield. You know, rats were digging down to get to the bodies, bringing up bits of bone, bits of equipment, you know, so they know then there's a body down there. Depressions in the ground where a grave had maybe settled. Even the grass would change colour where a body's buried. And, of course, in the early days, you're still dealing with putrid remains. So one of the, one of the pieces of equipment, you know, these, these, um, the Labour Company teams had was basically a machine gun rod, long, thin piece of metal. And if they believed there was a, a body, you know, concealed, they would push the metal down into the ground. Um, you could feel then if there's a cavity in the ground as well, that would give an indication if a body was down there. And unfortunately, also what they would do is they would pull the, pull the rod out of the ground and smell the end. Yeah, if it stank, then you know there's a body down there. So a very grim task. Um, and of course, once they recover the body, part of the job then is to go through the pockets of the remains, look for any identification, look for the guy's dog tag. You know, the force of the explosion that killed the man quite often had driven the dog tags into his body itself. So they're rummaging around this guy's remains to get, you know, to find any identification. So it must have been a harrowing task for those men. A really unpleasant one. Yeah, there's a, a picture in your book where there's a group of them exhuming a body from a kind of slightly flooded bit of ground, mm -hmm. levering it out with a shovel, and one of them's looking back towards the camera, probably be kind of revolting at the smell of it, and it, it captures that moment. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, and you can only imagine. I mean, some of these guys also, at the time, they're actually living on the battlefield. They're sleeping on the battlefield in tents, you know, um, I mentioned a quote from, from Stephen Graham's book um, in there, and he asked them, you know, do they see any ghosts? And basically, they just kind of smile and laugh at him, and they say, God, no, we see no ghosts here. These guys have seen, you know, the worst of the worst. Um, but you can imagine, I would suggest, some of these guys were drinking quite heavily as well, you know, just to try and, you know, take their mind off the task as well, I would suggest. Yeah, because it wasn't just one body they were removing every day. It was potentially hundreds, wasn't it? Yeah, so, you know, yeah, and the, the, the body density maps, um, which were produced at the time, were split down into 500-yard squares. And you will see, if you ever see a body density map, normally written in, in blue pen, is the amount of bodies they, they, they expected to recover in that square. So what they would do before they searched the battlefield, they would survey the battlefield, they would go around, they would physically look for bodies or where they think bodies were, they would put a stake down, Okay, mark those positions, and then that information would then be transferred onto the, the, the body density map. So they knew, for example, they, they expect to find 120 bodies, for example, in one square, because that's what they've found, uh, or what they believe they've found. Quite often they would find more as they're looking for one, then of course they would find more. Um, but the body density maps are quite interesting because, um, for example, if you ever look at one for the Passchendaele area, for example, um, there's a square there up near the Bruising the Ridge, and in about a 500-yard square, there's something ridiculous like 500 bodies. Um, and you, a lot of people would say, oh, you know, maybe that was part of the attack, a machine gun position or whatever. Actually, it's part of an old cemetery. So that's why you've got all the formation of the First World War battlefield cemetery. That's why you've got that concentration of, of bodies there. Um, so there's, there's stories behind, you know, all these, all these facts and figures. And it, it it wasn't kind of a random search; it was all kind of organised. And you talk a lot about the the man who was essentially kind of the architect of of commemoration, which is Fabian Ware. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and and Fabian Ware. I mean, for, for, 
the, the job really which Fabian Ware did, you know, during the First World War from his early days, you know, he knew pretty much because of his age, he's not going to be accepted as, you know, as a regular soldier. So he volunteers to come to the Western Front, you know, with the Red Cross. And he realises very quickly, you know, there's nobody recording where where these bodies are, where these graves are. So he starts to volunteer and set up um, his own system of registering bodies, which, of course, then the army takes on. Um, and then eventually it all develops into, you know, the DWGC and then eventually into the, the, the War Graves Commission. Um, so, you know, the whole of the country at that period and still today owns, owes such a lot to that man. And it was, you know, highly organised and they did amazing work. But one of the things that I, I discovered and found fascinating in your book was they didn't always get it right. There was this Hoog Crater inquiry. Yeah, no, the Hoog Crater inquiry is a really interesting one because um, it all comes about really because of, of an Australian officer in the area who was head of the Australian uh, body recovery teams. Um, and he wanted two uh, Australian graves to be investigated in Hooga because they'd already been replicated. He found that the same bodies or the same names were on other headstones. So they exhumed the, the graves and found them to be incorrect. So then they started to exhume more and they found more and more discrepancies. Um, and it was really because of that. The, the, reason, the reason being is it's like everything else in the First World War. You know, even when you go back to talk about the generals and everything else, you know, these guys are learning as they go. This is the first war of its kind. And even down to body recoveries and reburials, they've never had to do this on a scale, on a scale of this before. So Captain Crawford, who was head of, the labor, of his labor company at that time, he was in charge of those burials at Hooger. And there was a big inquiry, as, as you'll read in the, in the book, with regards to this. But it's also Captain Crawford who lays down the first set of rules and regulations in terms of how to recover bodies, quite strict rules and regulations in terms of this. And that changes, in effect, the way everybody else works. Um, so when you look at that inquiry, the, the inquiry itself is quite interesting because they're not trying to attribute blame to anybody. They're just trying to, to find out what had happened. And, of course, you do have another Labour company investigating this. And so there's always that element as well of one Labour company wanted to, to look better than another Labour company trying to prove the other one wrong. Um, so when you kind of read about the inquiry, um, but some of that comes through as well. But it's very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, not mis mistakes, inaccuracies made at the time, which is understandable when you look at the scale of it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember kind of reading about some of the graves that they concentrated and isolated graves that when they went to exhume, they couldn't find anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, or in Hooger, for example, they found a German body, you know, underneath, a, underneath supposedly a British grave. Um, yeah, and that's not unusual. Sometimes, as I said, at Hooger as well, Bodies laying across different graves, so um, yeah, so it's uh, it's not unusual that they'd open graves up, for example, and find and find nobody there. And of course, that brings us on to another thing that I absolutely found fascinating in your book was this whole thing about bringing bodies home that people, when the war ended, wanted to repatriate and couldn't, but some people then tried to circumvent that. Yeah, do you know that was a, a fascinating subject. Um, to, to research this idea or, or this thing about illegal repatriations or you know or, or body snatching um, because as early as as early as 1914 you know the British Army's putting in place this 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 idea of no repatriation because they realized quite quickly in the early days of the war anybody who was repatriating bodies 
were wealthy families. And, you know, that that's, was, was seen to be grossly unfair. So during the First World War itself, the army was able to hide behind Belgium legislation, which makes it illegal um, to remove a body which is already buried without good reason. But of course, that was the, uh, the theme, if you will, or the story told to the British public at the time. So when the war finishes, the British public, in a lot of cases, are expecting that regulation to be lifted. But then, of course, it's not. And, the, and the, the, it, it's made permanent, you know, the fact there's going to be no repatriation. Now, for some families, particularly some wealthy families, you know, these guys wouldn't accept this as an answer. Um, and there was a huge uproar in the UK about it. And it even involves a royal family. Because, as you know, buried on the outskirts of, or just on the outskirts of Ypres, um, in Ypres, in the main cemetery here, is Prince Maurice of Battenberg. Okay, so Queen Victoria's grandson, the only member of the royal family to, to be killed in the First World War. Um, and, of course, the royal family want his body brought back. So Sir Fabian Ware, I mean, we mentioned him earlier, but, you know, imagine standing up. How brave is this? Standing up to the royal family at that point in history and saying, no, you can't bring him back because all the other mothers in the country, they can't bring their sons back as well. So there's this huge outcry at the time from the royal family. And it gets to the point eventually where the royal family's advisors have to say to the royal family, just calm down a bit because you're going to start to lose public opinion on this. So then the royal family wanted... Uh, Prince Maurice to have a big grand headstone in effect um, and again that was turned down you know he has to have the same grave as, as everybody else so the royal family eventually adhered to this okay but for some other families they for whatever reason grief or because they just weren't used to accepting um, regulations or they didn't think were applicable to them whatever but they, they took it a step further which is basically hiring um, local individuals will say to remove the bodies at night. Now, it doesn't go on a lot, but it does go on. And there are some successful repatriations as well. Some, a lot of them were caught. Um, for example, um, Private Hopkins, who, who was buried in Tynecott Cemetery. His father, who was the mayor of Saskatchewan at the time, tried to remove his remains. But they caught him at Antwerp and they reburied Private Hopkins in, in the British Cemetery near Antwerp. But there's a famous case of a British uh, Canadian officer with the surname of Jury, and his mother actually got him repatriated back. If there was a huge argument going on, and lots of letters going on between her family and the Wargraves Commission at the time. I want my son back. No, you can't. And it's going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Then it all stops. And then the Wargraves Commission, it comes to light, a, a newspaper cutting, I think from the Toronto Star, if I remember rightly, saying that he's about or has just been buried in Toronto Cemetery. So the Wargraves Commission go to the cemetery. It's, on, it's in France on the Somme, open his grave up, and his remains are gone. But not all of his remains. Wow. So in the, in the dead of night, okay, under cover of darkness, they have removed pretty much all of his remains. They've left a few bits behind, put what they can into a suitcase, basically, and sent it over to Canada. Wow. Um, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, you call it the business of death, which I think is a, a fantastic yeah. kind of phrase for it. And I guess this was a generation that was only one removed from people robbing cemeteries in London for medical students. You know, that yeah, kind absolutely, of, yeah, that idea. Yeah, and you know what was really was really really interesting, which um, again I mentioned in the book, was it surfaced um, in one of the Wargraves Commission meetings at the time. Sir Fabian Ware was 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 worried, scared about organized crime. 
And his fear was basically people coming over here. And he says, we've got the, we've got the sons of lots of wealthy people buried here, lots of influential people, even the royal family, as I mentioned. And they're worried about body snatching and those bodies being held to ransom. So they're trying to suppress the whole thing. They don't want it to become, you know, known. We don't want to encourage it, you know, in effect, or give anybody the wrong idea. Absolutely, and I, I kind of think that that um, uh, crime, in some respects, associated with with death, particularly on the scale of the First World War, is something that you know we don't know enough about. I remember reading that confidence tricksters used to go into libraries in the interwar period and look up local casualties, and then go and knock on the door and say, "I knew your Billy in the trenches," and he said, "If I ever needed whatever, you know, and that." that you would give it to me and even worse were the missing ones where they'd tell them that they knew what had happened to their son and if they didn't give them this or that then they wouldn't tell them yeah well apparently there was um a, an ex-british officer involved um Corsten is his name um and they think he was operating at a poppering he had his own battlefield bureau his own battlefield group uh, tour guide uh, uh, business at the time they think he was operating at a popperinger with some local guys from from popperinger um, what they were doing is they were hanging around cemeteries looking for look, wealthy-looking individuals, looking at graves, and they're going over to them and offering their services, you know, I can get your son bought home for X amount of money if you keep it quiet kind of thing. Um, so they were physically approaching people in the cemeteries. And that kind of leads us on, I mean, the, the kind of interwar period we could probably talk about for hours, but you, you do move on to the, the Second World War and then how that then affects the area. And on the podcast, we've you know we've often talked about how World War One meets World War Two, and the whole kind of process starts all over again. Yeah, absolutely. And you still got you know they're fighting on the same battlefields. You know, Hill sixty, for example. And it's quite interesting when you start to look at body recoveries by dates. You know, you look at the body recoveries, nineteen thirty nine, and the early days of the Second World War in particular. They go up slightly in the area because what you've got, you've got British soldiers digging trenches again on the old battlefields. And they're digging up, you know, the remains of soldiers from the previous war. So that goes on, particularly over at Hill 60. Extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And with the fighting there as well, you know, monuments and cemeteries ended up being damaged. Yeah. Um, and there's battlefield damage or battle damage over monuments here all over the place. Look at the fascia of the Menin Gate, for example, particularly the fascia facing away from the town. So if you come into the town, um, all the cement repair marks there, for example, most of that is caused by the British Army when they blow the bridge up to stop the Germans coming through during the Second World War. And the dark cement repair marks on the rear columns around the panel where the New Zealand plaque is, that's German machine gun fire from World War II. There's shrapnel damage underneath the window frames along the, the road of the Menestrat there as you go into town. Um, there's damage over in headstones in Essex Farm, for example, all down to fighting in World War II. You've got the QVR, Queen Victoria Rifles Memorial blown up over at Hill 60. Um, that's collateral damage again during World War Two. So there's evidence of, of both wars here, all you know, all over the place. Once you know what you're looking for, and it, and it kind of shows that that the the history of the battlefields beyond the armistice was an ever evolving thing. And you bring it up to date with looking at battlefield archaeology in mm -hmm. Flanders. Yeah, and that's a that's that's a fantastic thing now because what the um, the Belgians have done. In particular, in, if you look at in terms of body recoveries, um, they're very different to how the French authorities recover bodies. So what the Belgium authorities did a few years ago, 
um, was if a body is discovered, they then make it temporarily property of the Belgian state, okay, which means they can then bring in um, proper archaeologists and they give the archaeologists 48 hours to remove the body from the site, which means you start to get more reports of body recoveries because you haven't got builders anymore worrying they're going to be shut down for three weeks or whatever. So people are reporting bodies. And what we do, the archaeologists come in, they'll remove the set of remains. They will also search the area for any other um, ways of identification, identifying those remains. They will produce a report and then release that report off to the the War Graves Commission and the JCCC back home in the UK, and eventually the body will, will be released to the British authorities. So in terms of the archaeology, that's helped immensely in terms of the control, we'll say, of how the dead are recovered, um, but also in terms of preserving the battlefields as well. It's an ongoing thing here. There's always archaeological digs going on here because um, you have to remember there was trenches here everywhere, and they're all still here, but just filled in after the war. So if you dig in the right field in the right place and you dig deep enough, you're going to find the floors to the trenches and the side supports, which is what happened at Yorkshire Trench, for example. Um, and once they find that, then they can then trace the route of the trenches. Um, so the, archaeology, the archaeological work here is ongoing, um, and, and it's very important in terms of preservation for the battlefield as well. And now, as you say, it's all kind of organised, you know, a bit like it was when the, the battlefields were properly cleared after the war. But when that ended, there was this big gap before the dead were recovered again on any kind of scale. I remember Andre Becker at Krunart <clears throat> yeah, yeah. going going out with a detector to find something in the often find remains. But it was the diggers, really, I think, that changed all of that with the, with the recovery of that huge number of soldiers at Bozinger. Yeah, and that was that's an incredible thing because you also have to remember with, with the diggers as well. You know, these are part time guys; these are Sunday afternoon guys. Um, and they basically, when, when that site was being um, cleared for industrial use, you know, Yorkshire Trench over at Boozinger, um, when, when bodies started to turn up, which, you know, is not unusual here, but huge amounts of ammunition as well, these guys volunteered basically to try and stay one step ahead of the bulldozers to try and recover as many bodies as they could. Now, eventually, they recovered, I think, the best part of 200 bodies. Um, they could only identify one by his, as an individual front uh, Francois Metzinger, you know, the French soldier, um, because he had a metal ID tag. Um, but the work these guys did was, was fantastic because as a result of the work they did, 200 soldiers received proper burials. Um, so it can't be underestimated or undervalued. No, not, not at all, not at all. And I think that it kind of made that um, kind of archaeology respectable in, in that, you know, Roman archaeology and medieval archaeology was what archaeologists who were professionals did but yeah a, a group of amateurs suddenly made professional archaeologists sit up and, and and listen and take notice of this which is great yeah and, and the thing also is what you you have to remember and it's still it's still relevant today is when they find a when they find a body today and they're able to identify him through dna or whatever he's going to have relatives still alive so it's it's still although it's 100 years ago in its history it's it's living history you know, and it and it makes an impact on families today. Um, no doubt, you know, you've been to uh, burials in cemeteries where, you know, the, the families have been invited, and it's an emotional thing. You know, in a lot of cases, they've never met the guy involved, but he's great-great-grandfather or whatever. They've done some research on him. He died at the age of 22 or, or whatever, you know, um, and it's a massive thing for the families. So it, that 
point, that part of that archaeological work is, is extremely important. Yeah, I think it shows that the power of the Great War is still so strong, you know, even beyond the centenary. Uh, people are moved by a relative that all they've got of them is a faded photograph. Yeah, yeah. And for me, uh, as a guide, I think for me, that's probably the most satisfying part of, of, of what I do is even today, because of the, the distances involved, you know, Australians and Canadians and New Zealanders, we will still get families come over today and they're the first person to ever visit that grave. And it's a real honour to be able to take somebody to a graveside like that and just to show them the grave and just walk away and say, right, I'm going to leave you now. This is kind of personal business for you guys. Uh, the emotion is is just phenomenal, honestly. Makes the hair stand up on your, on your arm. It's, uh, it's an incredible thing, yeah. It's a real privilege to be able to do, isn't it, really? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And one of the things that I, I felt that when I was reading your book that, you know, this is, this is about the past, in some cases the recent past, but it, it, it felt very kind of prescient, really, because exactly the kind of things that they had to deal with after the Great War is going to be exactly the kind of things they're going to have to deal with after the war in Ukraine. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very. And there's a lot of similarities, aren't there, between, you know, between the two wars, you know, not only the way they're fighting as well, but, you know, you kind of read stories of bodies laying out in fields everywhere and whatever, you know, it, it must, you know, echo the Great War to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess it makes it feel as if this was something that will, you know, kind of never end. Uh, and that the, the story of the Great War and, and the pages of the history of the Great War will keep on turning. Yeah. And as long as, I mean, in particular, you know, I, I sometimes get asked the question, you know, how long do you think this will last? You know, do you think people will always come? And I always often say to people here, if you think the Brits will stop coming, you don't understand the British psyche. Because whilst the cemeteries are here, we will always come. We will always remember. We will always visit these guys. And that that's just going to carry on and on and on. And this is why it's so important that we get so many school groups come here because these are the people of the future. You know, these are the ones who are going to say to their kids, oh, I must take you to, to Tynecott Cemetery. I must take you to Langemark Cemetery. And it's so important that these groups still keep coming and coming and coming, which they do still in large numbers, which is, it, which is fantastic. It is, it is. And in terms of your, your own pages of Great War history, do you have another book in the pipeline? Well, I have an idea, <laughs> which I'm not going to kind of talk too much about because I've, I've still got to try and um, run it past a couple of publishers first. But I do have an idea, yeah. yeah. Um, I would kind of like to do it on the same um, format as the book for Langemark in terms of like a mini guidebook type thing. So um, I'll come back to you on that one, Paul. Brilliant. No, it's, uh, I'm pleased to hear that. Well, Roger, thanks so much for, for joining us. And your book, Reclaiming the Salient, is published by Helian & Co. We'll put links to it onto the podcast website so people can find that. And it's a fascinating read. I mean, genuinely, again, genuinely new stories and new research in there. So all credit to you for the work you've done there, mate. That's really, really kind. And I appreciate your comments. And, and, and thank you very much for that. I'd just like to say that I'm, 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 I'm a very lucky person. I'm lucky enough to live here in an area I love and do a job. It's, well, it's not a job. Do something I love. Um, so, yeah, I'm just I'm a, I'm a really lucky person. So um, I can channel that into the into the books. So thank you very much.
Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I look forward to seeing you on the old front line sometime soon. Oh, no doubt you will. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks, Roger. Yeah, keep well. Cheers. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.